Hi, everyone. This is Mike Epstein, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Today we have a very special guest, Scott Southard, founder and director of the International Music Network. Scott founded the agency over 30 years ago and has since expanded the company to represent over 60 artists. Current clients include Wayne Shorter, Ladysmith Black Mombazo, Maceo Parker, and many more. Scott, thanks so much for being here today. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. Uh, thanks, Mike. I'm glad for the opportunity to to uh, to speak and uh, and look forward to sharing some ideas with you. Sounds great. Well, why don't we start uh, by having you tell us just a little bit about your background? It was a pretty short intro there. When, when did you start IMN, and uh, who were some of your first clients? Uh, back in 1985, I had worked for just a brief stint. Uh, for Ted Kurland. I had the Ted gave me the wonderful opportunity to to walk in off the street and become a booking agent without going through the mail room or in, uh, spending long years drudgery as a, as someone's assistant. I got straight to the phone and in 1984 he was representing Miles Davis and John McLaughlin and Keith Jarrett and Chick Corea and all those fabulous artists. Um, so in uh, a short stint there, I learned a great deal because uh, of Ted's generosity. But being foolish and young, I think I was 26 years old, um, I decided I knew how to do things better or at least uh, was going to take the, the challenge of entrepreneurship into my own hands. And I was quite fortunate in 1985 um, to start working with John Schofield Don Abercrombie and uh, a couple of regional bands that were were popular in the uh, in what was then not before the smooth jazz era, um, and in the 80s the marketplace still was sort of the end of the golden era of road houses where every town in America had a nightclub and many had a tradition of presenting jazz artists. I happened to be a jazz fan, really no. Tr formal training in any way, um, and with ambition and uh, 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 a lot of, of, of foolish drive, I picked up the phone and started dialing and 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 uh, started working at, with John Schofield and John Abercrombie and the band Cabo Frio, um, just booking like cool. And um, by 1986. Six, I got a call one day from Joe Zawinul. He was looking for somebody to help him in with his career in North America. And of course, again, it was an enormous honor to, to work for somebody as legendary as Joe. And then year after year, it, it just kind of grew like that. Um, uh, a lot of hard effort, but but also a lot of good fortune because because the market was still reasonably robust and a lot of good opportunities for somebody young. Absolutely, and I, I too would be remiss not to point out that um, I was about well, I was a little bit younger than you, but I was also given uh, sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity to work at Ted Kurland Associates, and uh, you know I absolutely have to give Ted and that agency all the credit in the world for just what I would say is the best education I've ever received, and um, much like you, at one point decided. Well, maybe I'll be foolish enough to do this on my own. <laughs> and then there you go. So I love hearing you describe sort of the beginnings of IMN. Um, and you touched on a few other things I certainly want to get 
uh, get to specifically some of the biggest differences between the marketplace when you started and now. But maybe first, um, again, just so people have a better sense of uh, what IMN is and the scope of what you guys do, um, I'd love to have you talk just a little bit about the agency in general terms. You guys certainly represent jazz artists, but you also represent a wide variety of world artists and uh, just about everything under the sun. So, you know, what, um, what what does IMN look for specifically when you're trying to determine a new artist to work with? Um, we look upon our job as uh, uh, um, trying to exploit the global cultural arts marketplace. And so what we try to do is understand the audience and and whether the audience is in Des Moines or in Dublin or in Helsinki, um, being aware of what trends are going on, what uh, venues the public is comfortable seeing this music in, and what prices, ticket prices they're going to pay, what relative marketplace values are. And so uh, our roster is a collective, uh, an eclectic mix of so world music, uh, jazz, Americana, Celtic, adults, what I describe as upper demo, culturally serious uh, music for, for audiences that, that enjoy that kind of thing. I think a, a patron that goes to a performing arts center or a nightclub doesn't identify themselves as being there because they're a fan of world music or a jazz fan, and then tomorrow they're going to see some contemporary music. They they uh, enjoy uh, Lyle Lovett and Bonnie Raitt and and Brad Meldow and Yusu Endor all as part of their lifestyle experience, and that's what we try to understand is who those the demographic of that audience is and how to access them. Um, we obviously take uh, we intentionally take a focus at high value properties, right? So it's Caetano Veloso and and Diane Reeves. And where is their audience and how do we uh, impact their earnings in the most successful way, trying to meet their objections financially? Uh, the major performing arts centers is one of the primary vehicles. The major jazz and cultural festivals is the other. And so the, the marketplace, as we see it, is a series of uh, stratification about different price points and different positioning in the market, whether it's a, a soft-seater in Chicago for seventy-five or eighty-dollar ticket versus a, uh, a, a a jazz festival in in Indiana, where the, where the audience where the ticket prices are lower and the audience has, a broader audience has access to seeing their performance. Many times these artists are getting mixed together with R&B and New Soul and uh, and Americana artists as well, and so those are the opportunities that we get to broaden the audience out for our artists. Right. Absolutely. A lot of great points there. Um, what I'm hearing is there's a big focus on making sure that you are matching up your artists with the appropriate market opportunity, um, especially when I hear you saying there's, um, when you refer to it as the upper demographic, that says that a certain patron is going to have a certain budget, of course, which would be very different from somewhere in another market. Um, so 
kind of walk us through your process here. What what advice would you have for an artist seeking representation? Because I would imagine you guys get a lot of solicitations for people looking for booking representation. Is there, um, besides the obvious sort of market history and and those types of things, what what sort of advice do you have for artists who are looking for representation? They might not be ready for it though. Um. I guess I have to approach this in the question in two different phases. And in terms of what we, IMN is looking for, obviously we have a, a very, in the macro sense, there's a very crowded marketplace. There are fewer and fewer performance slots for artists and more and more competition among the artists and the agencies for the diminishing number of performance opportunities that are there. Um, Back in the 80s and 90s, we had the benefit of major record companies investing in young artists' careers and and the availability of retail point-of-purchase marketing and strong journalistic uh, music journalism and radio play that that reached an audience and educated them. Those things have gone away. Along with them, have gone a, a number of performance opportunities. I mean, it's. Um, the emergence of the broadband digital marketplace, but also at the same time, uh, entertainment today is is uh, a crowded field. So uh, when we look at our roster, we look at it in, in an empirical sense as product mix, and there are a certain number of uh, slots available at different price points throughout the marketplace, be it performing arts or in jazz, and we feel strongly that we are, we have an obligation to developing new artists. Our business obligation is that, but also it's part of the fun of what we do and have had some success doing it over the years. Those artists that we're looking at to uh, bring on the IMN roster have to have a uh, uh, unique artistic vision and a unique artistic statement. Hopefully they're strong songwriters, but it's not necessarily the case that songwriting be their foremost talent. Um, singers obviously have an easier time getting into the marketplace. There are a number of fabulously talented singers out there, but very few who have established followings. And uh, so we're always on the lookout for, for the emerging singer that's got some regional following or um, you know, go to the monk competitions and t take time going through the second stages at festivals, paying attention to who's out there. Um, the more recent developing artists that we've signed, uh, trumpet player Avishai Cohen, um, Becca Stevens, and these are... Uh, obviously virtuosos in their respective instruments, Becca being a vocalist, but also they they uh, are courageously dedicated to their uh, artistic vision. They're not necessarily playing to the mainstream pop audiences. Um, they're not, you know, in Avishai's case, he's not fusing hip hop, and not that we have anything against that. I have several artists that do that well, um, but but I'm trying to speak to the clarity of their vision and what it is that makes them as unique artists, not derivative of somebody else. Um, so those are the people we're looking for. The other part of the question is, you know, what does a young artist do? Um, that, you know, work at honing your craft and work at clarifying your message 
to being as as uh, genuinely personal and uh, 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 singular as you can make it. Believe in what direction your heart, your musical soul is telling you to take and stay with it. Um, the history of cultural evolution is, is rich with uh, enormously talented artists who didn't get their recognition, but it's my belief that unless you stay true to that vision, the recognition, the the, the success of uh, the financial rewards aren't going to be there anyway. So please just just keep working on developing your individual statement. Excellent advice. So it's really interesting for me to listen to you describe the the contrast between when you started. Uh, in 84, 85 versus now, because obviously I only know the world as it is now. I only know, um, you know, that there's a limited amount of jazz clubs left um, as compared to what it must have been like at that time. But what I, but what's interesting is if there's less sort of traditional, let's just use jazz again as an example, less traditional jazz clubs around, there's so many more. Um, developments every day in technology that I would think empower these newer artists to do everything they can to be the best marketers possible. So I think you made a good point when you said something to the effect of we're really vying for everybody's attention because, of course, now everybody has their own stage. Um, But I would love to hear you talk a little bit about this. I mean, how, in a general sense, how do artists need to approach their touring careers today as compared to what it was like 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Oh, great. Uh, so 25 years ago, um, we relied largely on clubs for touring. And I like to cite the example that there was a, there was a jazz club in Akron, one in Toledo, one in Dayton, Columbus, Cincinnati, and in Cleveland. Today, I'd be hard-pressed to name a club anywhere in the state of Ohio. Um, But also back in that time, there were a number of cultural centers, you know, the the famous Carnegie Hall and Chicago or Symphony Hall and these places. Uh, But there's also, through the last 30 years, been an enormous blossoming of cultural arts centers, building new real estate, repurposing old organizations, major initiatives to, to... by community leaders to to bring cultural arts at a higher uh, uh, as a higher value proposition to their communities, and as a result, uh, the the evolving demographic in performing arts centers has moved from what was the core highbrow used to be symphonic baroque music dance uh, um, uh, theater, the, the classical arts. Um, when in in 1990 I started working with Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, I was the agent for Winton and the orchestra for 10 years. These were among the first jazz artists ever going into performing arts centers. Today, as we turn around and look, there's a jazz subscription series in dozens and dozens of art centers throughout the United States. Similarly, uh, back in the day, jazz festivals and, and world music festivals were a handful. There were a few very important ones, but it's now evolved to the to the degree where there are um, literally thousands of jazz and world music festivals throughout the United States. What this has done is aggregate 
the money that that the marketplace there, there are more ticket dollars being expended today than there were in 1984 there's no argument about that point but what's happened is that it's consolidated it into uh, destinations whether it's the cultural arts center or it's the festival in aspen colorado now the ticket buyer whose enter- discretionary entertainment dollar is spread against yeah, all the digital entertainment, all of the the emergence of the you know, the huge uh, major league sports, um, but also they have to save their money to being able to attend the the festivals or or afford the ticket entry prices at at the cultural arts centers. The cultural arts center, in order to balance their budget, they've got a fifteen hundred or twenty eight hundred seat venue. Obviously, as you you're a new artist. Uh, the opportunity to play there is going to be really uh, a, a difficult challenge. They have to sell $70 tickets and, and 2,000 seats in order to make their business model work. But on occasion, they have opportunities for opening acts or their black box series. In jazz festivals, it's the secondary and the tertiary stages. What these producers want to know is that they're bringing in creative new music. George Ween decided three or four years ago that that he wanted to maintain his commitment to, to new artists. He's now even added a third day to the festival expressly for the purpose of, of giving new artists a performance opportunity. He's not the only one. There, there are dozens and dozens of art centers and jazz festivals out there that are doing that, and the, the selection process that they go through is, again, the unique quality of your music and your artistic vision. The other thing that you can be doing is taking your chops in social media and bringing that to the table as a business proposition, knowing what the value of all of your Facebook, all of your Twitter following is and how to leverage that as an asset that's going to be meaningful to the Monterey Jazz Festival or that's going to be meaningful to the the secondary arts center in small town uh, middle America. Um, really working at thinking in a strategic way about how to compo- how to build that asset. We no longer have the radio play. We no longer have the music journalism. So what's replaced it is social media and the, uh, demo- the de- democratizing effect of social media is that you can control your marketplace. You've got to think of it in a strategic way so that it's an asset as you go out and try to make your way forward building a career with in, in live performance. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, this is a good segue because I wanted to ask you a little bit about your take on what how artists should pay attention to social media. But in in particular, um, you know, my sense is really that it, that any artist who embraces new technology um, is going to be able to market his or herself much better than ever before. And it's <laughs> I don't have to tell you. I mean, it's it's just an, it's so hard to keep up with the sheer amount of change in the music industry and every day a new a new app or, or you know whatever tool comes out so it, it's actually a challenge just to stay on top of all the new technology and figure out what can I use to my advantage I'm going to give you one example I'm curious if you heard of this um, it, it came out about six months ago it's an app called Periscope and it's a comp- and the company is owned by Twitter are you familiar with this app? No I haven't seen it okay so Check Periscope is a, a live video streaming app. 
Uh, you create an account. As I mentioned, it's owned by Twitter. So if you're already on Twitter, you have the option to follow your to see who's on uh, Periscope through your Twitter followers. But regardless, um, I just started messing around with this the other week, and I would the implications for musicians are huge. I mean, if I was uh, just in the studio sense, you know, maintaining a teaching studio, I could coordinate a class with five, you know, however many uh, students I've got, 100 students or whatever, and do one class at the same time live through my phone or my tablet. Or, um, and this is where it's going to get really interesting to see in the next few months if it catches on, how this app will disrupt live music and live performances. Because I can, as a musician from the stage, have my phone set up so it's you're, you're able to see us on stage and anybody following me on the app watches the concert in real time. All <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I have to. Uh, I, I guess I should be embarrassed, but I'm not fully embarrassed to admit to you. Uh, I don't have a Facebook account. I've never engaged in Twitter. Um, I value the importance of social media enormously, and I rely on the, sta the, the staff in my office who have expertise in that area to tell me what's, what, what channels that's going through. You know, I, I hear a lot of statistics about how many Facebook likes and what's trending and different, different measures, analytical measures of what the impact of these messages are. They're each important, and the technology is going to change on a monthly basis. Basis and trying to keep up with it and trying to be an expert in it is is an, an enormous challenge. It's a full-time job apart from being the full-time job of being a creative musician. Um, some of it has really strong value and others, um, uh, you, you know, putting up a YouTube video that doesn't uh, have a, a, a really strong connection to an audience is, is a waste of time. And Similarly, all of these other uh, channels of, of social media really have to be thought in terms of what's the value of the content. Uh, we, we talk about it as direct-to-fan relationship, right? So it, it's really going to take a lot more than just a pass along to somebody else, but an engagement by all of those people who are paying attention to social media in coming back, because at the end of the day, you're going to have to monetize those characteristics into buying your downloads or, or paying for a concert ticket to come see you. And there's going to need to be enough of a, uh, uh, strength in the value. I think there are, there are great stories about alternative indie rock uh, 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 phenomenons or the piano guys that, that came about just because of video or all the, the acapella mashup things that are going on and getting you know millions and millions of views. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the working class musician, and I hope we're talking to m mostly that, that audience in, in our discussion today, the working class musician really isn't going to be um, hitting the home run, but does need to be very astute about compiling a strategy and filling it with good, strong content that can be monetized. Yeah, and that's one of the things that struck me as I learned about this app is it is there is no current way to monetize anything. So even if I had permission from the venue and everybody involved to broadcast my concert live, it's totally free. So I'm wondering if they're going to roll out a separate feature there that would allow musicians to do that. Um, it's just kind of interesting. So um, 
Well, why don't we kind of transition here from the world of social media because we could talk about this all day. Uh, you've mentioned a few of these things already, but I'd, let's kind of focus in on it. So what are what are some of the bigger marketplace challenges that your agency is really dealing with today? Um, the, the lack of performance opportunities and the uh, the marketing model at so many festivals and performing arts uh, events is to not be repeat not to not being committed to artists' careers for the long term. They uh, have gotten into a model where. Um, each season has to be the premiere of some new great discovery, some masterwork, a new uh, program tributing a musician who died 100 years ago, a great cultural icon, an event that happened 50 years ago. And uh, increasingly, I watched this happen in the world music marketplace. I was the agent for Milton Nascimento and uh, Astor Piazzolla before there was a genre named world music. And we focused on Bulgarian women's choir and these these groups. We focused on the artistic message and uh, the, the, the really compelling part about an indigenous art uh, cultural form from be it Africa or Brazil or and eventually it became popular enough and was in part because presenting organizations and festivals would say um, you know the the greatest singer from Brazil the newest uh, Yusu Endor was the newest discovery from Africa at the time and 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 yet a, a, an enormous superstar in his home country year on year we watched the evolution of the world music next great discovery of the month phenomenon happen until there were no longer any artists' careers. There are no longer any great new discoveries. What we see in world music now is the, the merging of cultural messaging and the fusion of that music, and there's some really great stuff being done, but focusing on the artist's career and keeping a connection to the marketplace has sort of been lost. There's no longer a world music. We we use the term world music, but there as a genre. But there's no longer a marketplace. The audience is completely uh, disinterested because we've we uh, wrapped that formula for so long, and now there's no sustainable careers uh, virtually left as a result. That happens in in, in the broader spectrum of cultural arts and, and, and at festivals and in performing arts centers as well, where every event has to be a uniquely special once in a lifetime kind of opportunity uh, desensitizes the audience to developing a more sophisticated approach to understanding what is important about the music and that was uh, what for centuries the cl classical audiences knew the great canon of, of classical music and understood it. This is part of what Winton is trying to do with jazz at Lincoln Center is is establishing a canonical sense of a point of comparison what's good and and trying to help the audience uh, develop that that uh, appetite and understanding. Sadly, in order to f to pay the mortgage and fill the building, they have to continue to market it on these thematic uh, concepts, and some of them are uh, are perhaps a bit the the appeal to which is a bit stretched. But nevertheless, um, I think it's an important value to focus on on the integrity of an artistic message and not only the marketing message. In the era of of social media and 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 soundbite uh, communication, that's a pretty tough challenge. 
to do. Right. So when you say that there's a lack of sort of performance spaces, especially as compared to a couple decades ago, was your sense when you first started that there was just as many artists competing as there are now? Or would you say there's far more artists competing now and we we really do have less performance spaces? I guess I'm just kind of curious not from a venue I, side. You know, I, a... I, 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 I'm really reluctant to, 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 to take the job of the U.S. Census Bureau. I think there are more <laughs> artists. I mean, uh, look, at, look at the quality of what the university music programs crank out year in and year out. Look at the, length, the uh, extended length of lifespan of the, of the great octogenarian musicians that, that are still out touring today. Um, sure, there are more artists, but I think uh, probably a more cogent point is um, is the dumbing down of of or the 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 the, 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 the audience's appetite for uh, challenging new new music. Uh, there are ways around it. I mean, there there are festivals out there. Bonnaroo, the Big Ears Festival, Wilco started something called the Salad Sound Festival. Celebrate Brooklyn. Many of these events are really broadening and bringing in uh, audiences of younger and uh, active music enthusiasts, and they're giving performance opportunities to guys like Dave Douglas and Bill Frizzell, uh, who are you know the the kinds of visionaries that we all admire, and and but at the same time being able to communicate to a younger audience in a language that they understand, and I think. Those are the kinds of examples that I really wish um, the nonprofit community would invest in more because these are successful models. They are drawing audiences not only in Brooklyn or or the Berkshire Mountains in, in Massachusetts, but but in in Tennessee and in Illinois and everywhere else as well. It really just takes a, a commitment to, to uh, listening to your audience and creating strong connection as a presenter, creating a strong connection to what the audience is, is willing to, to, to experiment with and to come see. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to take up too much of a, more of our time here, and I'm looking at my list of questions and thinking that we might have to do another episode. Um, one thing I had hoped to have you talk a little bit about before we wrap up, you know, you've, it's, you've got a lifetime um, of experience working with artists and managers and agents. So I want to just have you talk a little bit about the distinction between these. For the uninitiated, there seems to be confusion as to what the role of an agent is versus the role of a manager. It's not uncommon for an artist to employ a single individual to serve both functions. So I'd love to hear you talk about this. I mean, given your experience, especially today, what is the role of a successful manager? Um, I am both an artist's manager and uh, an artist's agent. Uh, I have a, a, a short list of six or seven or eight clients who we book as well as manage. Historically, that meant the manager's uh, responsibilities were overseeing the, the record releases and coordinating all the, the, the media and the, the royalty collections and the publishing and all those things that, that uh, uh, went along with the machinery of releasing records. We still do that, um, but I think the manager is uh, uh, responsible for charting a strategic vision for an artist. And uh, some of the younger ones that I represent were 
working at the ground level in terms of developing strategies of how to access the audience and some of the older artists that I represent. It's more strategies towards what does the legacy of your career mean? And of course, in all, all instances, providing for their uh, financial well-being. Agents uh, are focused on a narrower set of activities, booking live gigs. Well, for any of my clients these days, 70 or 80 percent of their income at minimum, some cases 100 percent of their income, comes from touring. Recordings and the, the royalty streams that result uh, are becoming less important all the time. And so as a result, the lines between the importance of a manager and an agent uh, are getting blurred. Uh, I don't see an enormous distinction between the two of them other than uh, the agent has the overall responsibility of financial outcomes and long-term uh, uh, career. The booking agent is much more focused on what's going to happen in the next 18 months or so. Yeah, it's almost like in one way I've started to think about it if, if for the two separate roles is the difference between a project manager and a process manager. A project manager would be the agent because every time you have a unique set of inputs, certain time period for booking a tour, you're going to have a unique set of outputs. The tour is always going to be different than the last one you did. It's always changing. The process manager is the person who's responsible for making sure things more or less stay the same um, from a day-to-day -day basis. So, and the other, and the other, the other enormous component of this is cost. Uh, right. A manager needs to be paid 20, 15, 20, 25 percent to do their job. And if, in addition to that, there's a 10 or 15 percent booking agency, many artists simply cannot afford to pay 25 or 30 percent off the top. And so, the decision about whether you're ready to hire an artist, a, a artist's representative as your manager, along with it comes the uh, the investment potential is can you afford to do it? Indeed. Lots of way there for artists considering one or both or to have one person do the roles of both. So yeah. all right, that, to wrap up here, we've got you know a lot of presenters listening. Um, as the 16-17 booking season gets underway, what are a few new projects IMN is going to be marketing? Love to hear you share some of that with us. Uh, but we we have one titled Jazz 100. You know, in uh, in 1916 was the first time that the word jazz was ever published in writing describing that music which we love. Uh, in 1917, the 100th birthdays of Thelonious Monk, Dizzy Gillespie, Ella Fitzgerald, and Mongo uh, Maria. So Dizzy, uh, so Danilo Perez is music director for Jazz 100. And we have Chris Potter, Wycliffe Gordon, uh, Avi Shankon, uh, uh together to, to tour that. Um, Chucho Valdez and Joe Lovano have both been recording for Blue Note Records for 20 years or more, and uh, they're doing a quintet together. Um, Maceo Parker is going out doing uh, a new twist on the on the James Brown feeling formula. Um, a lot of great things going out. Buica has a new record. Uh, uh, we're working on trying to gather some dates with Caetano Veloso and Gilberto Gil duo. Um, lots of good things in store. Excellent. Yeah, certainly a good time to be a lover of the arts. It got me excited for some of these projects. Well, Scott, thanks so much for your time today and for being a guest on Speaking of the Arts. This has been a really great discussion, and um, I hope you enjoy 
the, the rest of the summer, even though it's almost over. Can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this today. Thank you so much, Mike. Good luck to you as well. Thanks so much. Take care.